0: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here. At this time, we're going to dismiss Antioch kids to go to their classes. Teachers, thank you so much for sacrificially serving. And we say to you as a congregation in this critical mission of our church, let's say a church, you are sent. Young disciples, there are guides right over here on the side table that you can pick up. That way, you can follow along in the sermon a little more easily. I'm going to ask a favor. Jason, you're back there close. I left my water in the back. It's down there on the floor beside the trash can so it wouldn't spill onto the sound booth. That would be bad, right? Would you bring that? Thanks, man. Well, this morning I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 20, verse 45 through chapter 21, verse 4. Young disciples, you'll need that. Thanks, brother. Today we're going to continue in our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. We have titled it Upside Down because we see Jesus taking the things that we think we know about the world and he turns them upside down. You can find today's passage on page 880 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. Here's a little bit of a guideline for our sermon today. I'm going to be speaking about the one who gave all and I'll make two applications In preparation for the judgment that is to come, first, put nothing into appearances, and second, bank everything on reality. With that said, please stand with me once again to honor the reading of God's word. And if you're not able to stand, that's okay, please stand with us in your hearts. Church, again, today's passage is Luke chapter 20, verse 45 through chapter 21, verse 4 hear the word of the Lord. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw, a rit- saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's say this together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, since it's Derby weekend, arguably the greatest and most beloved racehorse of all time is. Well done. I thought I would get some argumentation here, but we're all agreed it is Secretariat. Now, some of y'all say this because you've seen the Disney movie about him, and that includes the backstory of his owner, Penny Chenery, who inherited a horse farm that was in danger of going under. The story goes that she banked everything on this foal named Secretariat eventually even declaring down the road that he would win the triple crown. Who would have thought that this relatively new owner and a woman in a predominantly male business was worth paying attention to instead of being overlooked? Well, if they didn't, they should have, because not only did Secretariat win the triple crown, but after 50 years, he still holds the record for the fastest time in all three races. Here's why I start with this. So last Sunday when I was looking at the next scheduled passage to preach in Luke, I realized that we were about to overlook something worth paying attention to. As you know, the section of Luke that we've been in has walked us through the Holy Week narrative, the events that are leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We've watched him as he's gone to the temple every day to teach the people and confront the religious leaders and to warn about the coming judgment. And the drama is building to this most climactic moment in all of history that will take place on a hill called Calvary. And yet right here in the middle of all this suspense is four verses where Jesus sits down calmly and calls everyone's attention to... A widow, who's so poor that she's in danger of going under. So if Jesus is unwilling to overlook her, neither will I. We have much to learn from this woman, and it begins with this. Put nothing into appearances. Young disciples, you need to write that down on your guide, appearances, Adults, I would encourage you, sitting with your kiddos, and the slide passes by quickly, and it's like, what was that, you know, 10-letter word that was up there? Help them to write it down and spell it out as a part of kind of walking them through what it means to sit with God's word in worship. Jesus starts with a contrast to this woman. We read in verse 45, and in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes. Now, if you remember, during this week, Jesus has taken on the Pharisees, he's taken on the Sadducees, and now he's going to handle the scribes. The scribes, they were supposed to be experts in the law. Their Old Testament heritage was amazing. Listen to this. They were the ones who got to write down and copy God's word for others to be able to access it. They also transcribed the decrees of kings. Now, in the New Testament age, they ruled on matters of the law because they were scholars of it, experts upon it, and they were able to draft legal documents on anything from marriage and divorce all the way to loans, inheritance, mortgages, etc. If anyone should have been ready for Jesus' teaching, it should have been the scribes. And if anyone should have been helping to cultivate a just society, it should have been the scribes. But instead, Jesus exposes their actions for all to see. Look at verse 46. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who then devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. So what he's getting at here is a phrase that I think one scholar captures perfectly. This is spiritual showmanship. Okay, young disciples, you want to write that phrase down. This is focusing on what people think about you regardless of the reality about you. So think of it like a good actor. He can convince you that he is another person. If he's good enough, he can even convince himself that he is another person. That's what the scribes had done. And Jesus gives six examples of this. First, he says, they like to walk around in long robes. These were fancy and expensive. They communicated like, I'm not like you. In other words, I'm set apart. The Bible word for set apart is holy. I'm holy by what I dress in. Interestingly, these are the same robes described in Revelation as those given to glorified saints. And so the scribes have convinced themselves that they're already God's holy ones, beloved, approved. Now the next three examples that Jesus gives flow together. They love special greetings, the best seats, and places of honor. And I think it's helpful the way that Eugene Peterson puts this. I'll read it for you. Watch out for the religion scholars. They love to walk around in academic gowns. To preen in the radiance of public flattery, to bask in prominent positions, sit at the head of every church function. Think of it hypothetically like this. We're in Louisville, Kentucky, and it's graduation, graduation season. A seminary student graduates from, graduates from Southern and literally or figuratively never takes off their graduation gown, just wears it constantly, all the time. And in every space that they enter into, maybe even in church leadership, they believe that they are first and best because they are smarter, more educated than everyone else. Twice here, Luke uses the Greek word proto, which means first. For the scribes, spiritual life is a competition, and they see themselves as first. Also, Jesus says that they devour widows' houses. Interesting phrase, isn't it? Widows in this day, along with orphans, were among the most poor and defenseless people in society. And so if you read almost any part of the Old Testament, you see God's call to care for widows and orphans. Don't you? just kind of this mantra over and over? And the scribes of all people had the knowledge and the power to carry out that call. But apparently, they were doing just the opposite. In view of everyone... They were going into widows' homes to care for them. I'm going to stop by and see Miss Myrtle on my way to the temple today. But in reality, they were doing some or all of these things. First, taking advantage of widows' hospitality. I need some breakfast this morning. I'm going to stop by Miss Myrtle's along the way. I know that she'll put out a spread for me, even if it's all she's got. They were also probably inviting donations for their teaching. You really like that, Ms. Myrtle. I appreciate that. You know, you can give at the temple, but you can also bless my ministry if you would like. They were also probably charging a commission for legal counsel. I know I'm supposed to give this for free, but it's a lot of hard work, Miss Myrtle, if you'd like to uh, see that I get paid for this. And then, fourthly, and most likely in light of the phrase, devour widows' houses, they would go in and manage the estates of widows in a way that slowly drained all their assets. Now, that's pure evil. But to top it all off, Jesus concludes with something that we think is just kind of thrown on there, but it's kind of like the height of all this. They make long prayers for a pretense. In First Peter chapter 3, verse 7, husbands are told to honor their wives because if not, their prayers will be hindered. So if our prayers are useless when we dishonor our spouse, how much more were the scribes' prayers useless when they devoured the most poor and defenseless people in society? But that wasn't even the purpose of their prayers, was it? They had no desire to reach the ears of God with their long prayers. They thought they already had God's ears. Their purpose was to impress the ears of man. And this is what spiritual showmanship does. Young disciples, there it is again if you need to write it down. I'm going to leave it up there for a minute. Spiritual showmanship is religion on a stage. It's all about appearances. And when I was a young Christian, I started occasionally attending certain denominational gatherings. And even though I was pretty naive, I still made some observations in those environments that bothered me a lot. Things like men in expensive suits with entourages and people would line up to talk with them and some would even have them autograph their Bible. Things like then handing out trophies and plaques for the most amount of money given and the most baptisms in a year. And then things like people protesting and heckling anyone who were going into a contemporary worship related breakout session, and all this obvious pretense was like repulsive to me, and I vowed, like I never want to be a part of this, but the older that I've gotten, the more I've realized I'm not really any different at heart. I could be so keenly aware of all the attention that was being showered there because I wanted that attention for myself. I want people to notice me and try to meet me, to like my clothes and my haircut. I want people to be impressed with my preaching and my writing, to invite me to special events and to follow me on social media. I do. It's in my heart. And the truth is, all of us have our own ways of being a showman. If Jesus were to describe us like he did the scribes, I thought this week, like, what would he say? Maybe some things like this. They talk about the books they're reading or the podcasts they're listening to or the things that they're doing when their intimacy with me is almost non-existent. Or they have every answer on social media, but they lack any actual relationship of love with the people to whom they decree. Or they talk about their struggles when much of it is actually mood swings based on how they feel others are perceiving them at a given time. And this is why in the passage, Jesus gives his warning to the disciples. He's not talking to the scribes at all. He knows how easily even we as his people can act like the scribes, which should be a fearful thought because of verse 47. He says of them, they will receive the greater condemnation. In proportion to others who die apart from Christ, those who pretend to be pious examples will be judged more severely. So, women, beware the vanity of living for your outward appearance. Men, beware the falsehood of keeping in an impenetrable exterior. Youth, Beware the dead end of behaving just for the sake of popularity. We need to hear these things. Let the Holy Spirit in you and in other believers make you aware when you're putting on a show. Become an authentic person. Put nothing into appearances. Instead, bank everything on reality. Young disciples, you need that word. Bank, there's a little shorter one to write down this morning. Now, what do I mean by reality? Well, it's not what the scribes were living in. You see, they had helped to build an entire system that made them the beneficiaries. And that system said this, Follow our counsel and our example, and God will be pleased with you. And this explains why we read at the beginning of chapter 21, Jesus looked up, And saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Now, in this part of the temple, the religious leaders had set up 13 trumpet shaped offering boxes. This is not told in the Old Testament anywhere. They chose to do this, and all of them were for different designated gifts. And the system called for people to come and show off their donation to the temple. And it may have even been that your donation was announced for people to hear. Jesus in another place actually says that the Pharisees, when they come to offer, a trumpet is blown. Perhaps that was literal, like can you imagine what you draw off into the offering basket is announced for everyone to hear. And so the idea was the more that you put in, the more pious you appeared. And so the people came and gained merit. The religious leaders got richer and God was really happy with all of it right like no way like this was a total false reality they were living in and yet the tragedy of this wasn't how it benefited the rich but how it took advantage of the poor look at verse 2 and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins young disciples you want to write that down two coins think about this. The assumption in that day was that if you were poor, that meant that God was displeased with you. Now that's not true, but that was the assumption in that day. So according to the system, if you wanted to get back on God's good side, what would you do? Yeah, you'd give more money, right? You'd go to the temple, you'd drop in a big offering, it would be announced And people would say, okay, this person's doing better. God must be pleased with them. And that's just what this widow is doing. She's playing into the system that she's been taught to play into. She is described with the Greek word pentakron, poor, but still having something. Now, she's in danger of going under, but she hasn't quite gone under yet. That's what that word means. And she dropped into the trumpet two coins, both of which were worth one-eighth of a penny now can you imagine one thousand dollars five hundred dollars everybody's like ooh ah and then like .25 cents right so everybody's like wow Can you believe how little this lady just dropped in? The only reason that people would have paid attention to it would have been to snicker. That's it. Wow, this woman won't even spare a penny for God. He must be really displeased with her. But Jesus doesn't snicker. Instead, he said, verse 3, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Now, taken literally this means... She gave more than all of them put together. How could that be? Well, we get a hint of it in the different word for poor that Jesus uses here. It is not pentachron. It is patoke, destitute. As soon as she dropped those two coins, she became penniless because that's all she had. She has now officially gone under. She can go home and die. In terms of percentage given and how much left over for yourself, no one else had even come close to this woman. She, according to the system, is the most pious person of all, even though it's upside down. And Jesus continued, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Amazing. She is the one who gave all. Young disciples, that is the significance of her dropping in those two coins. She gave everything. But here's the thing the expectation for us at this point, and if you've heard this this passage preached before, you probably know what's coming. The expectation for us at this point is to praise the widow and condemn the rich and apply this as a motivation for giving to the church, which might be setting up its own kind of system, right? Hey, look at the scripture. You should give to the church. We can build a bigger building. But that doesn't seem to what Jesus is getting at here. Really, like he's just finding the widow worth paying attention to. And he's making an observation about what's been happening here in the temple. And we have to remember, these four verses, and you've been reading through the Gospel of Luke, you come across these four verses. It's why they're not preached very much. It's kind of like, what's going on with these? Like, this is kind of random. Why does Jesus even look at this widow? Well, it comes between over 30 verses that are devoted to condemning the scribes. It's not contained in Luke's gospel. That's contained in Matthew's gospel. It's longer than what Luke includes. And then after these four verses are over 30 verses on how Jerusalem is going to be completely destroyed. The system is going to fall. So what is the connection? Why would Jesus, why would Luke put this right in the middle of these two big passages of condemnation? The connection is the system built on false reality. You see, why was this widow down to only point two five cents? We don't know. But could it have been that the scribes had devoured her house? You see, just like if you were poor in this day, it was common to think that being widowed was also a sign of being displeasing to God. Therefore, to channel a widow's finances toward religious things was to the scribes, helping them out, getting them back in God's good graces with a little bit of advantage to yourself. My goodness, how wicked could a system be that takes the most poor and defenseless in society and drains them down to penniless? In the name of God. According to Jesus, that kind of spiritual showmanship is only worthy of one thing, to be judged until one stone is not left upon another. That's what he goes on to say. This is the 16th century Catholic church selling indulgences to the poor in order to fund St. Peter's Basilica. And this is 20th century prosperity preachers telling people to sow money into their ministry in order to gain health and wealth. And this could be any one of us who does not have this, spiritual sincerity. This is a person of transparency, vulnerability, and trust, like we talk about cultivating in our family groups. This is living not according to man-made laws and systems, but according to God's law, which is fulfilled in loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. This is continually growing in the awareness of your sin and therefore in the awareness that you are often unaware of your sin. This is living in reality, the reality that judgment is coming, which will condemn the showman and reward the sincere. It puts nothing into appearances because it knows that it is the inner reality of the heart that will be revealed once and for all. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis gives an allegory of a bus ride through heaven and hell. That sounds a pretty interesting concept, even if you haven't read the book, right? The narrator is on the bus and tells the tale, and one of the scenes that has been unforgettable to me takes place in heaven. The narrator suddenly encounters this, and I want you to envision this with me because there's no artwork for it. <clears throat> the narrator suddenly encounters a parade with a single float. And on that float is an unbelievably beautiful woman. And she's carried by angels and surrounded by young people and animals. The narrator assumes that it is some famous person, wouldn't you? And his teacher responds, and I'm going to read at length from The Great Divorce. No, not at all. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. Well, she seems to be, well, a person of particular importance up here, says the narrator. Aye, she is one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things and who are these gigantic people the narrator says look they're like emeralds who are dancing and throwing flowers before her a thousand liveried angels lackey her says the teacher well then who are all these young men and women on each side they are her sons and daughters well the narrator says that she must have had a very large family sir The teacher responds, Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. The narrator, being distracted, says, Well, what are all these animals? responds, They are her beasts. Every beast and bird that came near her had its place in her love. In her they became themselves, and now the abundance of life that she has in Christ From the Father flows over into them. And I looked at my teacher in amazement, and he said, Yes, it is like when you throw a stone into a pool, and the concentric waves spread out further and further. There is joy enough in the little finger of a great saint such as yonder lady to waken all the dead things of the universe into life. Why did you do that, Pastor Brad? That was a long reading from a random story and a weird book. Who knows if the crazy cat lady down the street, who can't come to church, but loves Jesus with all her limited faculties, will one day be lackeyed by a thousand liveried angels. What if Ed cinnamon passing out suckers to every child he loved? I asked him if I could talk about it. What if he will gain a greater reward than the guy who stands up here every Sunday and impresses everyone with his eloquent words and his seminary education? This is the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. No one on that day in the temple saw the piety of that woman and the impropriety of the scribes, but Jesus revealed it. Stick close to him and he'll show you what's worth paying attention to. He'll make you ready for the coming judgment. Y'all put nothing into appearances. Like the appearance of Penny Chinery. Never having a winning horse is what it appeared, right? Remember that little foal secretariat that she took a chance on? When he died, it was revealed that his heart was almost three times as big as a normal thoroughbred's heart. Instead of eight pounds, 22. Like that's the size of my my chunky eight-month-old. That's why me and Katie have big arms. That was reality, though you couldn't see it throughout his life. And you remember that man who was considered so not worth paying attention to anymore that he was crucified between two thieves and then buried in someone else's tomb? When he died, it was revealed once and for all that he was the only Son of God. Instead of staying dead in three days, He rose again. That's a heart a million times bigger than any human heart that ever existed. That was reality. It was our corrupt system of a sinful world that drained all the life from him. It was him who put in more than all the saints of all the ages put together. Like he was the one who gave all He is the one who will be given the parade of all parades, won't he? And he is the one who will soon bring judgment for every evil showman and reward for every sincere saint. Bank everything on that reality in your life, and you'll be okay. You'll be okay. Because he alone can give you the power over spiritual showmanship. He alone can enable you to say this with the Apostle Paul. Like I've been crucified with Christ. You know what he's saying? When Jesus gave all, like I gave all too. I've been crucified with him. I died up there on the cross with him. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who now lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, not in myself. Or what people think of me. But in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself, it doesn't end there. Gave himself for what? For me. He gave all. Yes, celebrate that. He's amazing. What's the connection to me? Why does it matter? Why should I care what you're saying up there, preacher? Because he gave all for you. He gave all for me, and now he lives in me. So now I have the power and the freedom and the joy to give all for him. This is more than a giving campaign up here, (laughs) y'all. This is like not to the church, but to him. All my money as he would want me to use it. And not just all my money, but all aspects of my life as he would want me to use it. Like my household, my school, my work, my phone, (laughs) as he would want me to use it. And not just all aspects of my life, but all seasons of my life as he would want me to use it. Old age, which may seem overlooked in the eyes of the world, But Jesus is paying attention. Or middle age, which may seem too busy to breathe. But he says, every day of it was written down in his book before one of them came to be. And if you knew the number of his thoughts coming at you in middle age, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Or what about young age, which may seem insignificant, but he says... Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but you set an example in love, faith, purity. And we get to see that very thing this morning, church, as a young man comes to be baptized, proclaiming his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ rather than his faith in himself. You see, baptism is one of the most important steps of obedience that a Christian can take. It is a declaration and a display of the total salvation that Jesus has already provided for us. There's nothing about these waters that's going to wash anyone clean. Jesus' blood alone does that. But we do this as a symbol, as a sign that points to that greater reality. A person is is lowered into the water. Yes, we are Baptists, so we, we put them down all the way underneath. In a minute, if they won't go down, we just got to shove them all the way down because we got to immerse in there. That's what the word means, all this. But here's the thing. It's a person acting out, this is the drama ministry of the church, acting out the, the crucifixion, the death of Christ all the way into the grave and then the resurrection of Christ. We don't hold them down. We might make them blow some bubbles while they're under there, but we do bring them back up, okay, ultimately to this picture of the resurrection. And today,